0: If you would, please open your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3, Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. Last Sunday, I opened the sermon by talking about questioning God. And I am pretty sure that I made it clear that this was not something to be taken as absolute or some type of technique. I tried to make the case that there are at least two ways we question God. One is not sinful, in my opinion. The other one is, again, in my opinion. The first kind of questioning God is when we question God about the how, what, when, why of his workings in history, that is, in our lives. Why have these things happened? And we find the answer by being anchored in God's character, his being, his person, who he is. The second form of questioning is when we question God's character about the how, why, what, when. This is what we found in our text last Sunday in Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask, by saying all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice? This, I think, is a questioning apart from faith. I was asked the question after the sermon, isn't any questioning of God really a questioning of his character? And if you would consider the story of Lazarus found in John chapter 11, uh, Jesus has been given word that his good friend, his very good friend Lazarus, is sick. And rather than you know, taking off and getting down to Lazarus, Jesus delays and Lazarus dies. Then they go to be with the family. When Martha, that is Lazarus' sister, heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary, the other sister, stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In other words, your presence would have kept him from dying. Simply put, your absence is, in in essence, responsible for his death. You should have been here. Uh, This is a questioning, I think, I don't know that it's necessarily a questioning of character, but one could say that, in essence, any questioning of God, somewhere in there is a questioning of his character. But if you listen to what comes after, I think we see the first kind of questioning that is rooted, that is anchored in God's character. This is what she tells Jesus, But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she said. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. That is to say, Martha is anchored, is rooted in who Jesus is as the Son of God, as the Messiah. It doesn't mean she didn't question him. She did, in fact, question him, saying, you should have been here sooner. Uh, Lazarus wouldn't have died if you had been here. The point I think I wanted to get across and that I want to get across today is not that there is a right way to question God and a wrong way but rather that we are not to question God's moral character. Whenever we question God, and I think it is inevitable in our lives that we will ask God why, we must rest in who he is. If we don't, then then everything is lost. It's a poor example, but it's the only one I can come up with. Imagine that you're playing a game, a board game, or a sport, basketball, football, and... At some point in the game, you change the rules. So in basketball, you say, well, if you shoot from this particular point, it's worth five points. From this, this spot on the court, it's four points. Well, you've completely changed the game. In the same way, when we question God's moral character, we change everything. And all bets are off. So what we saw last week with Abraham and with others... Their questioning of God was rooted in the firm belief that God is who he says he is. Habakkuk was very clear on this. But there is still room to ask God, why are you doing what you're doing? Why did this happen? Why didn't you do something to change the situation? Here in Malachi, the people to whom Malachi is writing have basically changed the rules of the game. They have said that God delights in evil. He sees evildoers as good, and he he thinks that this is wonderful. And then they say, where is the God of justice? God is no longer a God of justice. He's a God of injustice. Well, when you do that, you change the rules of the game. And to get them back on track, at the beginning of chapter 3, we have two characteristics of God that we are to hold on to at all times, so that even when we question God... By the way, when you question God, you don't necessarily get the answer that you want, but because you trust in Him, you trust that what He's doing is right. The two characteristics of God the first one we looked at last week is that God is just, in verses 1 through 6. The second we will look at today, God is faithful. The key to this passage is verse number 6, Malachi 3 6. I, the Lord, do not change. And in this, we are told of the character of God. This is who God is. That God is a God of justice, we saw, is seen in five things. In his preparation, um, before he comes, in his appearance, in his refining, in his judging, and in his patience. The final three may not seem to be in sync. The the refining, we talk about soap and uh, fire, um, what fire does to separate Uh, the impurities from metal, what soap does in getting dirt away from clothes or out of clothes, uh, that's what God will be doing with his people. And that seems to fit in with judgment. But what about the patience? Patience seems to cancel out the refining and the judging. Or I would say that judgment and refining seem to cancel out patience because why doesn't God just let them go along their way? If you look at verse number five of chapter three, so I will come near to you for judgment and I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive aliens of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. This is the result of people who don't fear God. Because they don't fear God, then they do these things. And God, in fact, will seek to correct them. But he is patient. The patience seems out of place, but it is, in fact, the character of God. The central point of the passage, as I said, is found in verse number 6. I read the first part a minute ago. I, the Lord, do not change. But you, O descendants of Jacob, so you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. And now we come to see God's grace, God's character, God's patience that he is reliable, he is dependable. And Israel should thank God that he is a God of patience because otherwise they would have been destroyed long ago. God's unchanging character and purpose is the reason that Israel was still around. They are unfaithful, God is faithful. They broke the covenant, God keeps the covenant. This is who God is. He is gracious, he does not change. And there's more to this, and we'll see this in, in a minute. God is faithful. Now that we are more comfortable with the idea that God doesn't change, then we hear of his faithfulness, we're like, yes, that, that makes sense. God doesn't change. God is always faithful. When we consider how he continued to deal with these heart-hardened people, instead of rejecting them, and ceasing to show them any affection, he shows them how persistent, how lasting, how constant his love has been. God's faithfulness will be seen in three things. The first is in his call. Look at verse number seven. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? If you were to summarize the Old Testament prophets into one word, it would be the word return. In the New Testament, we would call it repentance. But in the Old Testament, it is returning. They are to turn. They are to do a 180 and come back to the Lord. We hear this from Zechariah early in his book. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Do not be like your forefathers, to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed, This is what the Lord Almighty says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices. But they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. This has been what the prophets have been saying for centuries. Turn from your wicked ways, your sin. And return to God. Turn and return to God. Once again, here in the last book of the Old Testament, and as I said, after Malachi, it will be 400 years before there will be another prophet from God. The last words that come from God are that they are to return, they are to reverse their direction, and instead of focusing on self and sin and idolatry, they are to turn around. They are to turn around and look in faith to the God of promise. We've seen, though, that they ask, where is the God of justice? Um, The problem with Malachi's audience, and I suspect often with us, is they thought they were innocent. They thought they were innocent. And that's why the question at the end of verse number 7, how are we to repent, is not a question of, what is the procedure for repentance? What is the right what are the steps in repentance? The question is why do we need to repent? What have we done that that is makes us needing to repent? What it doesn't make sense to us. We don't think we need to repent. We don't think we need to return. We're already there. Why does Malachi tell us that we need to return? How can one or how should one deal with such people? People who want the blessing of God but don't want to obey God. Who want to be in covenant with God but they don't want to live up to their side of the bargain. They're like, we are innocent. What do you say to people who are who think that they're innocent or who say that they're innocent when in fact they're not? What are you supposed to say? Well what God does is he points to one specific area in their lives in which they are not innocent, in which they are guilty of breaking the covenant. And that is tithing, which comes up in verse number 10. It's not to say it was their only sin. It's not to say that it was their worst sin. But it is, I think, a very tangible and a very visible sin. And I suspect that in part is is why it has been mentioned. What we see is that they are willing to cheat God, what was due him, and they are willing to neglect God's people. As we will see, tithing was not simply for God. It was to take care of those who were in need. And by not tithing, they are basically saying to God, we're not going to give to you. But they're also saying to those in need, we're not going to give to you either. You want to know why you need to repent? Why Why do I need to return? Here, here's a very, very specific example. Verse number eight. Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. The word rob here is used only one other place in the Old Testament, in the book of Proverbs. And there it is used as plunder, to take by force. It isn't just sort of filching or stealing or pickpocketing. It is to take by force that which belongs to another Let me read it to you from Proverbs 22. Do not exploit the poor because they are poor, and do not crush the needy in court. For the Lord will take up their case and will plunder those who plunder them. In not giving their tithes, the people in Malachi's day were robbing God. They were taking what belonged to him. This is the very touchy side. What tithing, giving, what are we to make of it? Well, before the law was given to Moses, we have two mentions of tithing. The first one is with Abram, before he became Abraham. Um, his nephew Lot, who was living in Sodom and Gomorrah, and various kings there were taken by force by Kedul and his allies. And Abraham gets his, I think, 318 servants, and they go out and they rescue Lot and get back all the things that were taken. As he is returning, he is met by a mysterious figure, to us at least, a man named Melchizedek, who is the king of Salem, or Jerusalem, and he is called a priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Um. In a sense, that's the end of the story. And Melchizedek will show up again, I think, in Psalm 110. And then later in the book of Hebrews, just this character who sort of shows up and disappears. And here we are told that Abraham gave him one-tenth of everything he had taken from Keterlamer and the other kings. The second time that it is mentioned is Abraham's grandson, Jacob. Jacob steals from his brother. He has to flee for his life. He sleeps at a certain place one night, which will be called Bethel later on, and he has a dream of the ladder or the staircase that goes to heaven. Uh, He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth and with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac, I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will be spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. By the way, this is what God told Abraham as well. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. Jacob wakes up. Then he made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on the journey I am taking and will bring me or give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be the Lord's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. This for me is not an example I think I want to follow. Basically, Jacob's like, if you give me everything I want, then I will tithe. Well, what if God doesn't give him everything he wants? So this seems to be, he's trying to quid pro quo, he's trying to uh, bargain with God, somehow trying to buy him off, saying, if you bless me, then I will give you a tenth. Um, Again, I, I don't think this is an example that we are to emulate. It is in the law that tithing is laid out. And we find it mentioned uh, throughout Leviticus Numbers and Deuteronomy. Um, we read to you from Leviticus 27. A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. And this is a recurring theme. Tithe belongs to God. It's not as though this is mine and I decide to give 10%. It is God's. Okay. it um, What is it for? Well, it's worth noting that there, were, there wasn't one tithe. It wasn't 10%. It was actually, there were three tithes. The one tithe was for the Levites and the priests because they were the ones serving in the tabernacle and later on in the temple. The second one was for feasting. And this, I, um, I hesitate to put it this way. To, I don't mean to make light of it, but I would almost call it the party tithe because what you would do is you would take 10% And then you would go to the tabernacle, and there you would basically have a feast before God using the tithe. That's what you would use to pay for. And actually, uh, if you brought cattle or if you brought grain, that's what you would eat. It is the feast tithe. The third tithe is to provide for those who are in need. The fatherless, the widow, the aliens who lived in their towns. And this, interesting, is to be done every three years. So you could argue that it's a three and a third each year. At the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns, so that the Levites, who have no allotment or inheritance of their own, and the aliens, the fatherless and the widows who live in your towns, may come and eat and be satisfied, and so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the works of your hands. So there's a tithe for the Levites. And by the way, the Levites were to tithe for the priest. There's a tithe for the feast. There's a tithe for those who are in need. Beyond that, you have all the various offerings. And you have the voluntary gifts that are given as well. Someone has said that the difference between tithing and offering, or giving an offering, is that uh, tithe was owed and an offering was voluntary. I'm not sure that I want to make that distinction. I think in both there needs to be an open heart, there needs to be cheerfulness in giving. Um, But there was a real sense in the law that these things belong to God and you're to take care of those who are in need. The problem in Malachi's day is that the people were not doing this. We saw this in Nehemiah, by the way, um, that Nehemiah, when he comes back, has to, get people tithing again so they can pay for the Levites because the Levites have abandoned the temple because they need to feed their families. One thing I would remind you, and that's from Psalm 50. God says, I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens for every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you For the world is mine and all that is in it. The tithe is not for God per se. God doesn't need anything from us. It is an act of faith to say, you know, I'd prefer to have 100% of what I've earned, but I will give 10%, 20%, 23, and a third percent to God and trust that he will make the rest be enough for me to live on. And I will provide for those who are in need. Because what I earn isn't just for me and mine. It is for those who are my neighbor. Malachi's audience, in fact, were not doing this. They were robbing God. But God is faithful. He is faithful in his call. And he calls them. He calls them to turn. He's faithful, secondly, in his challenge. And now he challenges them. I read verse number 8. Let's read it again. Will a man rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. What are the consequences of robbing God? Well, it says you are under a curse. You may remember that there are two options open to God's people and to all people, blessing or cursing. And either we obey God and he will respond in blessing, or we disobey God and he responds with cursing. If we do not obey, as they were not obeying, we should not expect God to bless us. But I thought God loved me unconditionally. If God loves me unconditionally, why, why is he mad? Why, why, is the ju- why is there judgment? Why is he correcting? Why is he challenging me? It's precisely because he loves you that he wants you to get back on track and do things as you should be doing. It's precisely because God loved them that he would not let their disobedience go unnoticed and uncorrected. So what is the challenge? How is God's faithfulness seen in the challenge? Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. The whole tithe because remember there's more than one kind of tithe, okay? Into the storehouse that is a temple As I said, this takes us back to Nehemiah 13, where Tobiah, uh, the Ammonite, was actually living in the storeroom where the tithes were kept. And Nehemiah throws him out, and he gave orders for the room to be purified, and then he put back the equipment of the temple, and he called on the people to tithe. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and oil into the storerooms. This is what they're supposed to do. And why? That there may be food. Food for who? For the Levites, the priests, and for those who are in need. So what is the challenge? Well, let's keep reading in verse number 10. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. Test me. I challenge you. Bring the tithes in as you should and test me. The third way in, God, in which God's faithfulness is seen is in his promise. The second part of verse number 10. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. This is an amazing promise, actually a set of promises. Um, I think they give us insight into the curse that was mentioned previously. Um, the pests are eating their crops and the vines in the field are dropping their fruits. They're not; The fruits aren't ripening. Um, they're falling to the ground before they can do so. And God says, listen, if you do what you're supposed to, I'll make sure that these things don't happen. Having said that, I think... Verse 12 is what should catch our eye that all nations will call you blessed. Okay, we started by talking about questioning God. What we see in verses 1 through 12 is God's response that God is just. When they say, Where is the God of justice? Here he is. Uh, It is in his appearing, in his preparation, in the appearing, in his refining, in his judging, and then finally in his patience. And God is faithful. I've mentioned several times in this series, and I think part of it, maybe I was anticipating today's passage, is that the words of the Old Testament are most frequently, if not always, directed to people of a specific place and time and culture. And we are people of a specific place and time and culture. And we need to be very careful as to how we should apply what we read in Scripture in the Old Testament to our lives today. Uh, What we should be seeing in our passage today is God's faithfulness in his calling, in his challenging, and in his promising. But I think this has been overlooked. Everyone seems to focus on the giving, on the money, on tithing. Um, The church has, in our time, been so associated with money as to... It's actually quite tragic. Um, Remember an old, old Bob Hope... Joke. He said that once he was on a plane that lost power and was starting to go down and people were afraid they were going to crash. And somebody said, somebody do something spiritual. Somebody do something religious. He said, so I took an offering. You know, And that, that seems to be what people associate with the church far too often. And many come to verse number 10. That's what it's based on. And that's not what the passage is about. It's about God's faithfulness. That's really important. The question then does come up, however, does it apply to us? And if it does, how does it apply to us? I will give you some bullet points, if you wish, some bits of information, and have you think about it and come to your conclusion. See, we're people of the New Testament, not the Old Testament. This is an Old Testament passage. What does it mean to us? First of all, much is said in the New Testament about giving tithing is never mentioned with regard in in the epistles uh, instructions given to the church Paul never says to the Corinthians you guys need to tithe we just don't see that almost all the references, not all of them, but most of the references in the New Testament talk about giving to those in need 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 Paul is collecting money for the people in Jerusalem who don't have enough to eat that's what he's doing Now, in 1 Corinthians 9, he does talk about those who are in leadership need to be taken care of. That almost seems to be the exception. It's more about taking care of those who are in need. Secondly, tithing is never mentioned by any of the early church fathers. I find that fascinating. Look at the second, third, fourth century of the church writings. Nobody talks about tithing. Thirdly... Oftentimes when we talk about tithing, I think there's a wrong emphasis and it's seen as obligation rather than something that we should do willingly. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 9, Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And when we talk about tithing, people are like, "Oh, ten percent." Kind of make sure—is it the gross? Is it the net? And suddenly, we're not thinking about the fact that out of love for God, cheerfully we give to Him. And by the way, the Second Corinthians nine seven—that's a passage about giving to those in need. Okay. I think it is worth noting, and we saw it in Ezra and Nehemiah, that whenever there is a time of revival, whenever people are filled with joy, they give. It's almost, it's almost as though as, as soon as you read about Israel coming together and they're filled with joy, you're going to, soon after that you're going to find out that they gave. And they gave rather generously. It's not something that is an obligation. Also, I think tithing gives one a false sense of stewardship. And this is, I think, one of the real problems I have, that people say 10% belongs to God. And while they don't say it, what they're thinking is 90% belongs to me. Uh, 100% belongs to God. Okay? It's all the Lord's. And if you think in terms of tithing, you might fall into the trap of thinking, well, it's all mine. I can do with this 90% whatever I want because I've given God his fair share. And that's not true at all. The basis of giving is love. It is a response to God's provision and his love for us. The early church in the book of Acts was marked by extreme generosity. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. This is not tithing. This is I sell whatever I have and I give it all to the apostles. Why? So that the apostles can live it up? No, it's for those who are in need. I think quite clear. This is followed, by the way, in the next chapter by the story of Ananias and Sapphira. you Are familiar with it? A husband and wife sold a piece of land and what they did was they said, okay, they conspired basically and said, okay, we're going to tell them we got this much but we're going to keep part of it and, and give the rest to them. And if you know the story, God killed them both. Okay, but what Peter said to him is, "Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? The land was yours, okay. And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? You are under no obligation to give anything. You didn't have to give anything. But to try to deceive the church and well, 'Well, we're giving it all,' when in fact you weren't—that was the sin. There's to be no obligation in our giving." It is to be done cheerfully and it is to be done voluntarily. Now having said all that, this is not the primary point of this passage. It is the reality that God does not change. God is just and God is faithful. And while our circumstances may scream the opposite, our circumstances may say to us, God is not just. God is not faithful. The reality is he is. God is faithful and he is just. And that is what we should anchor our faith in. You know, a ship puts down an anchor, it doesn't mean it's going to just stay there. It might be blown here and there. It it might strain at the anchor. But it it is anchored. And the circumstances in our lives may in fact really challenge us to say, why? I want to believe that God is just. I want to believe that he's faithful, but what is going on? God is just. God is faithful. God does not change. And we should put our faith in him. Let's pray together. Father, I suspect it is a part of the human condition that we think we know better than you. We would never say that out loud, but in our hearts we think it. That our circumstances are not what we imagined, what we planned for, what we want. The reality is, you are the Lord God Almighty. You do not change. You are just and you are faithful. And you have given us far more than our daily bread. You take care of us. You care for us. I thank you for your justice and for your faithfulness. And may we receive your call, your challenge, but above all, particularly during this Advent season, recognize your promises that are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. Thank you for all that you have given us. May you give us open hearts, open hands, generosity, May we be generous because we know that all things come from you. That you will take care of us. You always have. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for bringing us together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. May we each have a sense of your presence in the coming days. We pray again for Kim, the baby. She has a procedure this week. Watch over them both. And for Rachel, who will have the arthroscopic surgery. For each of us, what we will face this week, we don't know you do. May we know that you're right there with us, that you are faithful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.